0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm joined today by friend of the cast, committee member, former chair of the committee and lawyer, basically for every important agency in the government at some point in his career, Mr. Harvey Rishikoff, Originally from Canada. We're not going to hold that against him. How you doing?
1: Thank you so much, Lisa. First, I want to thank you for the extraordinary job that you do in this podcast. I remember when you came to us and said, I have this idea. I think we have to be more relevant to the audience that is now part of the emerging national security law community. And us old fogies didn't know what a podcast was, couldn't spell podcast. <laughs> and now you've created uh, what I think is one of the jewels in the crown of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Other than that. yourself,
0: of course. Well, you mean the said, jewels and crowns. <laughs>
1: well, I, I'm not more of a faux jewel. You're a true jewel. Oh, and we, that's very sweet. As you know, I, I still retain all my clearances, so I have to, have to take the polygraph. So despite the problems of the polygraph, if I say it, it's got to be true in my own mind.
0: Okay, uh, well, I'll take that to the bank. That's very sweet. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on because you're always fun to talk to. There's just been so much stuff happening right now that I felt like we really needed to do a news roundup. Let's face it, we're in the middle of at least two hot wars. It could escalate to three if China and India don't start sort of provoking each other And the Middle East is is just a disaster. Let's talk for a minute about the International Court of Justice, which is now opined on Israel's actions in Gaza. We know and we've done an entire podcast, which we're going to hyperlink with friend of the cast Brian Egan on the Rome Statute and the International Criminal Court of Justice. This past month, South Africa, of all countries, who apparently is a signatory to the Rome Statute, and they brought basically a genocide case. Is that right, Harvey? Against Israel. You know, after some period of time, apparently the ICJ issued a 44-page opinion. So let's start from the beginning. Why South Africa?
1: I think that's one of the questions that many people are asking. Why did not one of the more traditional states that have been historically not aligned with Israel or stand quite strongly for the question of international humanitarian law? Why were they not the moving party for the application? And I think part of the issue is that we clearly in the United States are supporting Israel. And the idea of bringing this cause of action would cause some concern amongst the American support of where we are and have historically, since Truman, been supporters of the state of Israel. South Africa, as we all know, has had its own complicated past vis a vis racial issues and apartheid. And there is also been an historic relationship of South Africa with certain parts of Israel. And so I think it's one of those intriguing international questions. But in the end, they did move the court, and as the opinion reflects, they are sustaining the case because the Israeli response to the application by the South Africans was that they had two responses to the actual move in the act. The first was they wanted to reject the jurisdiction of the court. Their view is that the court should not have jurisdiction under the statutes,
0: And the statute Um, being the Rome statute, right?
1: Also, the statute concerning genocide, that they basically rejected the request for the indication of provisional measures submitted by South Africa. And for us, you know, we're lawyers who listen to this broadcast, and I'm an old appellate law lawyer, so that the first question we ask always is, what is the standard of review that the court has? Who has standing? And what's the standard of review? And the two positions Israel took was, one, they had to reject the request for the provisional measures. And two, they had to remove the case from the general list. It had to be removed off the docket, which is the classic standing and jurisdictional position.
0: Mm-hmm. The good threshold questions, right?
1: Yeah, Every law student, is, if they take civil procedure, they're told that that's why every brief begins with jurisdiction. And as our conversation, had, why is this at the ICJ? So I'll read to you what's quite fascinating is the position of the court. This is paragraph 36. At this stage of the proceedings, however, the court is not called upon to determine definitively whether the rights which South Africa wishes to see protected exist. So Mm -hmm. the court is saying this is not a determinative moment for the court. We do not have determined whether or not the allegations of the South Africans that the rights Of the Palestinians slash Hamas are being violated under the Geneva Convention. Their argument is we are not making, we are not required to make a determination. Mm -hmm. What we are required to do is it need only decide, that's the court, whether the rights claimed by South Africa for which it is seeking protection, and here's the standard of view, which I don't think most people know, are plausible. We don't have a plausible standard of view that I've ever seen in the federal system.
0: What would that look like? Because you know, you think in terms of things like proof beyond a reasonable doubt, that sounds like a very high standard or so, preponderance more likely than not.
1: We have usually clear and convincing preponderance mm. and beyond a reasonable doubt. And then when you do reviews administratively, you'll ask is substantial evidence. So this is more, I would think of a akin to an administrative procedure of substantial evidence. So it's quite intriguing. Moreover, a link must exist, a nexus between the rights whose protections are sought and the measures being requested. That's all they're saying that they're doing in this particular decision, a provisional decision that South Africa has met the standard. And the opinion says what makes it plausible is there have been a number of statements by senior Israeli officials that smack what we would think of genocidal intent. And And did they
0: cite an example of that? Because I thought, you know, the Israelis have been thoughtful, I think, on a lot of the things that they have said to not say things that would resonate in quite that way.
1: No, I think that it's, as a lawyer reading the documents, the citations of certain senior officials. And then the question is, you know, does that explain the intent of the entire Israeli state? That's a totally different issue. But when Mm -hmm. you have, statements of, I believe it was their attorney general, it's quite disturbing that a senior official would make a statement, and certainly they may have made the statements in the heat of the moment post the attack that took place. But nonetheless, it triggers the possibility, which is part of the key resolution of whether or not you're going to trigger the convention, since intent plays such an important role. So let's see the statement that i have right here october 9th 2023 the defense minister of israel mr Galant.
0: so two days after the attacks let's be clear
1: ordered a complete siege on the following day Galant stated speaking to israeli troops in the gaza border quote i have released all restraints you saw what we are fighting against we are fighting human animals This is the ISIS of Gaza. This is what we are fighting against. Gaza won't return to what it was before. There will be no Hamas. We will eliminate everything. If it doesn't take one day, it will take a week. It will take a week or even months. We will reach all places. The president of Israel said similarly on October 12th, we are working operationally military according to the rules of international law unequivocally. It is an entire nation that is responsible. So think about that. It's an entire nation mm-hmm. out there that is responsible. Does not, that does not separate Hamas and the Palestinians.
0: Mm-hmm. Hamas being a designated for terrorist group and Palestinians just being an ethnic group.
1: The implication, which I think is an implication that has been articulated periodically, occasionally by Netanyahu, is that this could not take place. Hamas could not exist without the support of the Palestinian people. The Palestinians have to know this extensive tunnel work. They have to know what's going on. And we would call it Israel's position there is collective guilt with very harsh language is where the court is seeing the potential of an intent of a genocidal approach.
0: That is an interesting note. I would add to this, though, looking at the other side of this issue, which is hard to do in a situation, we have to remember that Israel is a country that has mandatory conscription that the Israeli Defense Forces depend entirely on the buy-in of all of Israeli society, the agreement of the mothers and fathers of Israel to volunteer their sons and daughters to this program of conscription to defend this extremely tiny nation against the larger Middle East. That creates a situation where it would appear sometimes to outsiders that the whole of Israel is involved in these activities that are ongoing. And it's always unfortunate to hear anyone sort of cast widely a statement blaming such a large group of people for involvement. And just because somebody knew about the tunnels, I guess, Harvey, my question is, what does that really do? If you can't work in a place like in Iraq, right? You couldn't have a job or become a lawyer or a doctor, have a license to practice medicine unless you joined the bath party. And you may have hated the bath party, and most people did. But that was the only way to apply your craft or to practice your profession. And there really wasn't any other way to survive in that society.
1: What I would say is that there's an evolution in understanding the law of war and the relationship of civilian populations to the armed forces. If we go back to antiquity, the Romans, the Greeks, the theory was when you lost the war, the goal was to gather the men, kill many of them, take the women, rape them, and make them citizens of your own state. So the idea of of the modern idea of prisoners of war, how you separate a population from the individuals who are part of the armed response, really begins in the American Civil War. It's really Order 100, in which Lincoln puts forward this concept that The goal is that eventually we're going to defeat the South. And if we're going to defeat the South and we want them to join the North, we have to fight in a way and treat individuals with a sense of appropriate chivalry to allow them to rejoin the Union in a manner that will not have guerrilla movements for the entire time when the war, quote, ends. So Mm -hmm. many people think Lee's statement of the war's over, boys, it's one of the most dramatic moments because it tells his the army of the South they should lay down their arms and join the North. Now, arguably you will meet Southerners who say that they believe it was a strategic pause and that they continue to not recognize the Civil War's victory. And to this day, as you know, we have disputes as to what is federal power and state power, which is coming again most recently this week. And <laughs> the court decided that no, Texas does not have the right to put up barbed wire on the border between Mexico and the United States. But by the way, 5-4 decision wasn't a 9-0 decision.
0: (laughs) And they put the wire back up right away afterwards. So this so this, Like Sisyphusian, here we go, wire up. (laughs) This is a very
1: interesting modern notion. And as you pointed out, we began with the concept of the citizen-soldier Mm. was expected to be able to take their musket and join the resistance. We've separated the military as a professional group that is distinct from civilian society in order for us to create these issues that you're saying that you're, it makes you feel uncomfortable that a state would hold the population accountable for activities that take place. Now, this issue with the relationship of Hamas to Pal- the Palestinians is... When those statements that I read, that collapses that distinction, as opposed to maintains the distinction, which is the modern notion we have for the Geneva Conventions and our statutes under international humanitarian law.
0: I do think there's some risk, too, of at least in the eye of a sort of the broader civilian Muslim public, that because of the mandatory conscription in Israel, if at any point there is blame ascribed in a legal sense... Um, to any part of Israeli's current military or intelligence activities, that there is a risk that it will appear to be all of Israel again because of the mandatory conscription and because of the necessary buy. It may not be, you know, hey, I, you know, you know, the tunnels are there. You got that stake that you wanted that night. And that was the only way the stake was getting into the territories that you knew that they were this was gonna happen because you you agreed your children would come in to serve in the IDF. That was part of signing right. on to be in Israel. I, I just I'm deeply concerned about where this could go in terms of public opinion about Israel, which I see as just this tiny little place holding on.
1: Okay. Well, I understand. So I raised <laughs> One issue is, as you know, we've expanded the concept of aiding and abetting in the terrorist context. So we've gone forward with, you know, we've had the debates about if you drive the terrorist to the event and you have senator that's going on, then you're aiding and abetting and therefore you should be able to be prosecuted. If you are not aware of the person's intent, therefore you can argue that you weren't part of that conspiracy. But we've expanded the notion of aiding and abetting in the terrorist context post 9/11. The sa- other issue—it well, is, sounds
0: like driving the bank robber to the bank, Harvey. Correct.
1: Right. But the other issue is is that statements made by the Israelis and even uh, reflected in the opinion is the Israeli position is we're not saying bad things are not happening. What we're saying is the appropriate legal framework should be either international humanitarian law or the legal framework should be criminal law. We do not think we should be using the convention against genocide that we as a state and actor are committing genocide. That's the distinction. It's how far does it go into this? Because you remember it's the famous line by Talleyrand when dealing with the settlement in Versailles with Napoleon, and the famous Taliban said, oh, your fight is with Napoleon, not the French people. So it's a very fascinating, long-term issue in the law of armed conflict, how you distinguish the people from the, quote, military and political leadership.
0: Yeah. And it's going to be a challenge in the event that there is something that happens to Israel in any sort of international court or in an international context, because, again, size of Israel, the necessary mandatory conscription and the like. But it's going to be interesting also to see what happens in Israel over the next six months. So the court rejected that the court rejected that particular part of it. Another feature of the case was that the South Africans actually asked the court to order a ceasefire. Now, I don't even know what authority the international court would have to order a ceasefire. I mean, this seems to me a bit strange. What was your reaction to that?
1: So I think there, when you read the decisions, which were, you know, there's 17 judges. And what's also distinguished about the 17 judges, of the recommendations, provisional recommendations, some of the votes are 17 to 2, and some are 16 to 1. And I can go through a little bit of the conversation. Why that's significant to me, Justice Barack, one of the most famous Israeli Supreme Court justices, and as fate would have it, actually, I took a class with him in Cambridge years and years ago with Alan Dershowitz. And it was pretty clear that, I will say this for the record, Barack was clearly just a lot smarter than Dershowitz. There's just no question about it. And we asked Dershowitz <laughs> to stop talking in class and let Barack speak. because It was clear we're going to learn a lot. Dershowitz
0: would beg to differ. Oh,
1: yes. He, he was very upset with me. And I said, I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm actually speaking on behalf <laughs> of the class. The issues were Barack voted with non dissent is the state of Israel should take all measures within its power to prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide in relation to members of the Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip. Barack agrees with that. Barack also agrees with the decision, provisional decision. The state of Israel should take immediate effective measures to enable the provision of urgently needed basic services, and humanitarian assistance to address the adverse conditions of life faced by the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Again, Barack votes with the majority of the court, and that's a 16 to 1 decision.
0: Hmm. It would be hard not to vote in that direction, assuming you had authority to do so, given what we're hearing about, you know, sort of the well, state of, well, of affairs of civilians. And
1: I know you say that, but this is the world, so there's I... one... <laughs> There's one justice who votes against all of the measures, and that is Justice Sabutud, who is from Uganda. And she literally votes against every of the decisions and provisional requirements of the court. And Barack joins her in the court with the 15 to twos are the other issues concerning uh, state of Israel shall in accordance with its obligations under the convention take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2, which is the genocide convention of this convention in particular. So he doesn't want to be on board Justice Barack's position, where it assumes that it's being assumed that genocide is taking place, which that implies you assume something's going on. When you parse the decision this way, you really see some fascinating nuances in the opinion.
0: That's interesting. I think if you're a young lawyer and you're interested in this sort of international Criminal law, genocide, and the like. These are the kinds of things you should be reading. And th- I think what you're saying, and I think is often the case when you look at any sort of, I'll call them appellate rulings, especially if you have, you know, like three judges on a particular panel, you begin to understand a lot about the judges themselves and sort of their Velschen shown. And I think it's a good idea to read these things closely when you can, especially yeah. when you have time.
1: When I was a baby attorney, and I was the first time I, Wrote my my memo for my judge who was an appellate judge. And I came back with some counter opinions from other circuits. And I said to him, yes, but the, you know, the fourth and the ninth and the second circuits have done this and gone the other way. His question to me which at the time I thought was bizarre. His question to me at the time was, Well, Harvey, I'm not really care about that. You have to tell me who in the Second Circuit wrote that decision. You have to tell me who in the ninth wrote it. And he, as an appellate judge, had clearly more respect for certain jurists than others. And he wanted to know, so from then on, we always had to say, this is the judge who wrote the opinion, and these were the judges that went along with the opinion, and this is who wrote the dissent. And I must confess, as I've gotten older, I began to see the wisdom of really looking at who is the actual author, of the opinion before I will blindly follow it as great law.
0: That is an important thing to know. And also, sometimes there are sort of different ways to approach these judges in any arguments you might make before them, or it helps you anticipate what you might expect. Let's pivot away from sort of the grim state of affairs in Gaza, which is utterly disheartening right now. Let's move on to something else. Let's look at the sort of slush bucket of weekly China news, because, you know, it's just every single day there's some major thing out of China that would impact some area of national security law. Let's just start with the basics. So the House has a standing committee right now on China. A lot of really, really smart lawyers working over there right now, some of them uh, people that I know. Tremendous respect for them. They have just introduced some legislation that would restrict federal funding for medical providers who share genetic information with one of the big Chinese companies that are believed, you know, under China's various statutes of sharing information directly with China's intelligence services. You know, somebody listening to this might say, well, so what if it's anonymized genetic material? What could they do with it? And there are a lot of things that they could do with it. What do you think are some of I picked something that was a little off the regular thing that we talk about to kind of discuss what areas of national security law, something like this might touch. So,
1: if you remember, we had our annual review this year, which we had 800 plus attorneys in the room or listening on line. Some
0: people would say too many in one room.
1: So, I, in my view, as a former dean, it was <laughs> nirvana. You can never have too many lawyers. I find that it's a statement I don't understand. It's, it's fake. <laughs> You know, it's I, I love being surrounded by our people. We had Jason Matheny, we asked to speak, who's currently the head of the RAND Institute. And before that, his last job was he had ran IARPA and he had been involved in OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy for the president. And we asked them, what is an area of national security law that you bump into lawyers and they don't know enough about it? And you think we should be thinking more about that issue and educating them and taking courses. And his answer, which I think stunned the room, was biotechnology. And he basically articulated the theory that there are two phenomena taking place sort of in the, in our world. One is the evolution of AI, and the other is the incredible breakthroughs in biotechnology.
0: Yeah, I have an intern who's going to love to hear this right now well, because this I is think- his area of expertise.
1: Well, the intern is very clever. It's like this is like the plastic, this <laughs> yeah. is like the plastic speech in the graduate. So, if you,
0: <laughs> for those of you who don't
1: know, yeah, right? Me, just just Google <laughs> graduate speech and plastics, and you'll understand this. So, <laughs> I got one word for
0: you: yeah. plastics. That's
1: exactly. So, <laughs> the, the issue is loss of that biological and biotechnology and information is going to be where there's going to be a revolution in biological sciences, and it will be part of the AI revolution, ever unlocks those mysteries and can find- the Without cure. releasing
0: a deadly pandemic at the same time. I'm sorry, go and, ahead.
1: Yes, that Jason was worried about the deadly pandemic side. He was a little bit worried about how you can re-engineer and sort of re-engineer this And since this listening group, 20 years ago, if we would have, someone would have told me there's something gonna be called COVID. And then it's going to shut down the world for two years. I would have laughed. And then when I was a dean at the National War College, we had a war game about a COVID-like pandemic. And when we brought it to the Pentagon, they thought it was, well, what a fascinating intellectual exercise. (laughs) A thought Uh, exercise. (laughs) But we don't really care. It's not going to be a military. We Uh don't care. uh
0: They never read Barry's book, right? The Great Pandemic.
1: No, that had not been on the official I think generals reading Admiral and General's reading lists. So as a result, the thought of why we should be concerned about that, because in the end, the data information that the Chinese are scooping up is going to help determine where we're going to go in that area. And then it's going to be, for those of you who do private practice, the holiest of holies, who will get the patents.
0: Well, let's, let's talk for a second. So let's look at CFIUS, okay? For example, you know, one of the interesting things is I think if, you know, if somebody came in a Chinese corporation and tried to buy a company that was taking information regarding uh, genetic information regarding the United States citizens, I'll tell you, first of all, why would that be so valuable? Because we're an incredibly diverse country. We're not all Chinese. We're not all anything. We're everything. So that would be a lot of information about the global population, just because you came to a country so open and possessing of all these various people with all this different kind of genetic material, really from all over the globe. So we would certainly try to block that if we felt that it was being used for some sort of national security advantage or, you know, something like that. We would surely try to run interference, right?
1: Well, they would have it because I lead such a fascinating life. <laughs> uh, earlier today, I was talking to one of, I guess the chairs of the American Bar Association Medical Health Committee. and like we have our annual convention. they have their annual convention of health Law. And in the conversation I raised with who you know, I said, well, I'm kind of shocked that you're not going to have a, a ransomware panel because you know the hospitals have some of the worst IT protections that exists of any major institution in the country. I said, I am sort of stunned by that. And then we raised this issue of IT and biotechnology. And of course, OSTP is on this like a laser. This is one of their huge fears. Who's gonna control the medical breakthrough world? You need the data. If you have the data, then you get the patents. And then all of a sudden we're playing catch up because Mm -hmm. of the breakthroughs. It's quite fascinating when you look at what's generating real income in our economic competition with the Chinese.
0: The Chinese can't do that kind of thing with genetic material because their society has less diversity. There's not one monolithic China, but I meant in terms of having access to all of this different DNA from across the globe, they certainly can't just get it from inside of China. And so we would be a sort of a brass ring, a really great thing to get a hold of in terms of our...
1: Because as you know, data is the new oil, is the common statement. It has the most data who can then use these algorithms and can train their AI. That's who's gonna help define the 21st century.
0: The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association And this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.